The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. Of all the things that have, oops, here you go. Of all the things that have happened in these last two years, learning that song is one of the silver linings for me. And it's a good one for this month, this very long January that we're in. I think it's January 64th today, right? And this is my first message with you all in this new year of 2022. But in our last message series, back before the holidays, you might remember that we were talking together about all of the different ways to find joy the accessibility of joy around us, even if we don't feel it in us. The way that joy has this ability to live right alongside loss and grief, to be with it without replacing it, to be a companion and a friend, even when the world and the winter and the year is harsh. And we talked about that necessity of fueling ourselves with joy, especially in these times. And you know, one of the best ways that I find when I am not feeling it to refuel myself with joy is to reach out, to connect with something outside of myself with a person who is not me in that moment. And it's true that it's a risk, right? It's a gamble. You never know what will come your way when you reach out to connect. You might be disappointed. You might end up frustrated. But you might not. And the best and most exciting way to make that gamble really is to reach out and try to connect with a stranger. Maybe talk to a neighbor that you've never talked to before. Say something nice about the shoes or the pajama pants of another parent at (laughs) drop-off. Talk to the person who checks you out at the grocery store. Ask how their shift is going. We might be unpleasantly surprised, but especially in those initial ways, when we first make a connection with a stranger, our expectations are pretty low. And so the payoff can be really good we might actually make a new friend. But we also might just connect briefly for a moment with someone who can empathize with us, with someone who is experiencing what we're experiencing, and get just enough of that feeling of, yes, me too. Same. We are not alone. And so in this message series, Starting our new year, we are doing something different at Wellsprings, and we are doing that as a whole community. Each week, this month and next month, your preacher is going to be bringing a stranger into our congregation, into a conversation about their experience of this place where we live, about being a neighbor who might see things differently than you or I see it. All of our guests in this series, Neighbors and Helpers, are connected in some way to areas of Chester County or, for one week, other UU communities. Our intern, Beth Monholland, will be doing a sermon where she talks with other UU seminarians from around the country. 
But these are all communities connected to us, whether by proximity or affiliation, that are outside of Wellspring's doors. And so each week, all you have to do is listen. Just realize that you are getting to know a new person, and you are helping by listening to thread those connections between us, to weave more of a net between our spiritual community here and the various communities around us so that all of us can be better neighbors and helpers to each other. This morning I won't be saying too much more from this stage because rather than bring my guest here today, we actually recorded a conversation just yesterday morning. And we're going to share that conversation with you in just one minute. But I want to give a little bit of an introduction before we start. This week I invited community activist and former Coatesville City Council member Nydia Graves to speak with us today. A heads up for all of you that Nydea uses they and them pronouns, so you'll be hearing me refer to them that way. Nydea is just about my age, but they have been active in community work in Coatesville for their entire life. And in the summer of 2020, I began seeing their name everywhere. I was like, who is this Nydea Graves? This is clearly some kind of mover and shaker. And as I looked in that summer, especially into local demonstrations, protests, community responses to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. I saw their name over and over. But Nydea was doing community work long before that moment. And thanks to a connection to knowing the Nettingham family here at Wellspring, I was able to connect with them and extend this invitation to speak with us. So I hope you all enjoy this opportunity to hear from a neighbor, to get to know their perspective on this area and on the challenges that we've been facing in our community these past few years, and what we might all be able to do if we grow our connections with each other. So I'll turn it over now to myself from yesterday in a different shirt, and Nydea Graves. Nidea, for taking the time to talk with me today and for sharing your experiences with our congregation. We're just really happy to have you, and I'm, I'm grateful for the time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So um, at the moment, for kind of lack of a better title, I've introduced you to our Wellsprings community as a community activist in Coatesville. So I'm wondering how close I am. Is that how you see yourself as an activist, or are there other words that you would use to describe yourself besides activist or in addition to activist? Yeah, I mean, I do use activist uh, to describe myself, but also I'm just, like, a community member. I think that, like, any member of a community that's willing to um, stick to the collective and build relationships with their community is a community member, and any shift from community member to community activist just is around, like, making sure your community gets what it needs making sure you advocate for your community what it needs. Mm -hmm. So you can't really be a community activist without being a community member because you don't have enough power to say by yourself, hey, my community needs this. You need to be in community (laughs) and say, we all are here. All of us are saying that we need this. That's a cause for 
more response. And in connection and in conversation with the other members of the community. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you grew up in Coastal, right? Yep. Born here, raised there, family, uh, family legacy here. My great grandfather um, came here from North Carolina um, after his uncle was lynched in the South to escape like violence and, and terrorism came to Coastville and started working at the steel mill and has secured our life here, basically. When did the steel mill in Coastville uh, shut down? Do you know? I don't know because I either was like a kid or not paying attention enough. So, yeah. I mean, I know that like when I walk by, I still smell sulfur. So there's still people doing like work, but the switch from like Flukins and the big operations to like the smaller operations, I'm not exactly sure when that happened. But that, yeah. I mean, I know that it had like a significant economic impact on Coastville. That's like the information I have. But I could probably do some research and like figure that out. But off the top of my head, I don't know. I could too. I'll, I'll Google it later and, and figure it out. Yeah, I, it's a it's not an uncommon story for other towns in Chester County. I live in Phoenixville, and I know that mm-hmm. that has a similar story of industry that was shut down, I think, in the early 80s is when the steel mill here was finally shut down. Um, but the impact that that had on the community was huge. Um, mm-hmm. Well, in the same downing town, like, I, yeah. I have, like, memories of a kid of, like, riding by and smelling the paper. I used to, like, just, like, love it. I'm like, oh, it smells so good in downing town. And I would be like, Mom, what is that? She's like, oh, it's the paper mill. And, like, you know, you ride by and there's, like, no paper mill and no, like, that sweet paper smell is not there anymore. Yeah. Or burning wood or whatever this smell was fireplace smells are nice that might have been at the burning wood um well and you talked about being a community member first um what made you want to transition from community member to activist or to take that active role in your community as you grew up well i think the issue is just turmoil living at like multiple points of marginalization and realizing that my community is in Margin, like multiple points of marginalization, it's really just like I deserve to not only survive, but like mainly survive, but just like thrive in a place where I'm well. I deserve to live a life that I'm not always trying to recover from trauma. And, and I'm just trying to figure out like, but why? Like at some point you're like, well, but what is going on that's causing this repeated and relentless struggle and repeated and relentless trauma and you're like oh there is just systemic harm being like rained down a lot of times it's like oh like pull yourself up by the bootstraps people will be like oh some people don't have boots and I'm like no some people are standing on your boots you know and you just need to be like hey get off my boots (laughs) I just want to relax yeah so growing up and noticing that there were barriers around around your health and your wellness and your thriving and also seeing that maybe those barriers didn't exist in other communities? Yeah, and no, the, the, that's the thing is they exist in other communities in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, they exist too, it's like too wide and too far how much they exist. I think the more we stay in silos, the more mm-hmm. we like 
are like we're battling this alone but when you start building community the wider and more you build your community the more you hear your story over and over again and the more you're like hmm like how come this is happening to all of us um and so a lot of times even people of privilege are still sharing like common threads and stories because there's like a a big a big wave is going to sink all the boats even if you're on a ship if you got a little boat like the impacts are going to be different but a big wave is a big wave and things like racial capitalism and heteronormative patriarchy and white supremacy are are big waves yeah and the more we talk to each other about them the more we have a chance at coming together to work against them yeah exactly or you realize that Number one, the more you talk to people, the more you get out of a shame spiral because a lot of what is things that happen to you, a lot of times we take on shame like, oh, that, you know, I feel shame because I grew up poor. I feel shame that my family had to struggle. I feel shame that I was like a victim of such and such of assault. And instead of saying like, this happened because we live in a world that prioritizes wealth and capitalism and concentrates its power into the one percent this isn't only happening to me because i failed to be smart enough to be the one percent the more you stop feeling shame and start getting angry and angry to get into action yeah it's sort of the uh, ugly underbelly of this idea of meritocracy that i know i was raised to believe like that's a good Mm -hmm. thing you know you all have a chance to make it you all i mean you know you can you I remember when I was um, just out of college, I worked in Washington, D.C. for five years, and we worked with a youth program, and it was such an eye-opening conversation for me to talk with one of the other women I worked with who was a black woman, and it was the first time I was introduced to this idea that getting out might be a harmful idea, right? Like, that there was so much individual focus placed on, like, mm-hmm. promise, at-promise youth, right, or at-risk youth, like, getting out of these communities, and she was like, why don't we make the community better? And yeah. I'm embarrassed that it took me 21 years to be introduced to that idea, but that's the system that we live in. Like, nobody had asked that question to me before of, like, why why are we trying to get one kid here and there into a, a position of privilege versus supporting communities that have been disinvested in um, and actually making the community stronger so nobody has to escape them? Like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. yeah, but it's a big, like, that's the big lie too because not only is meritocracy put so much pressure on you it's also a lie people work hard and are smart and can't make it out and it has nothing to do with the fact that they're not you know not working hard and not intelligent because plenty of people just are and and not every that's the thing that's the rule for capitalism is not everybody can be at the top that's the only way it works it has to be some people at the top and some people not you think the people who are doing the labor, the building, the grocery store work, you know, fast food jobs and caregiving, those are all lower wage jobs, but those are all some of the most strenuous and emotionally laborious work. Like people that are working hard, forty even more than 40 hours a week, because we all know that like people usually have two and a half jobs. People are coming home exhausted and to hear like, oh, well, you wouldn't have to live like this if you just worked hard. Like, how much work, if I could work hard, I'd be a robot at this point. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I I love, thank you for bringing that up, the idea of um, 
community connection and community work and activism also as an antidote to shame, right? As a resistance to that that idea that tries to put shame on you for not for not doing better or for not making it. Um, that's just a whole other level that I didn't think we were going to talk about. I'm glad we did. Um, so actually, and coming back a little bit, um, I do want to hear a little bit more about the kinds of community work that you've been involved in. Um, so um, I know that you know one of our congregants, um, and I think I first saw your name online in connection to her um, in 2020 when I was um, first noticing um, and seeing the work of a local group called Chester County Stands Up, mm-hmm. um, which I think is one of the groups that you are, are connected to. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Chester County Stands Up, um, what they work on, how they work, who they are? Yeah, so Chester County Stands Up is a local chapter of Pennsylvania Stands Up, which is a statewide organizing group who decided that um, our community is not only statewide, nationwide, worldwide, but we have more power as a state um, to really pass some big and bold legislation than we did as individual groups. So small activist groups across the state really came under the Stands Up umbrella so we could uh, dedicate time to local organizing but also statewide organizing for like big campaigns. Um, so Chester County Stands Up on a local level has um, been working on the campaign to end cash bail and su- also supporting other local organ- organizing groups too. So um, that has been like the big, the big campaign uh, which is very difficult but obviously um, to me, I'm a prison abolitionist, so I don't think that um, when community harm happens, I don't think that we solve community harm by, like, turning away from it, taking the person and putting them away. I think it really takes, like, healing and investment, which is extremely hard. Um, it's not as easy as, like, putting a person away and not seeing them again for the next few years. However, if we want a thriving community, number one, we need to uh, reduce the amount of trauma that's on people that would lead them into a criminalized behavior. And two, um, we need to work on community healing and providing whatever it is. Um, Because we're not going to live in a world where harm doesn't happen. That's not a possibility. Um, Even, like, if all the circumstances are well, people are going to harm people, even in your family. You, you cause harm, and I think we need to put more emphasis on, like, how do we repair harm when, when we cause it more than, like, you've caused harm, now you're a bad person, now, you know, we have this category of, like, good people and bad people is when really all people cause harm and all people get harmed, um, and we need to figure out how to deal with that. So I think Cash Bell particularly criminalizes people who – have caused harm or are accused of causing harm and cannot afford to come home and defend themselves, um, you know, get a lawyer, even try to read about their case from home. You're like, you have to remain incarcerated until your trial, which means you have no time to prepare for your trial because you're just incarcerated. Um, and the only difference is, like, I can afford to not be incarcerated. I can't, which is a clear violation of your 14th Amendment right to citizenship and fair and equal protection under the law. Um, And so that's been the big campaign of Chester County Stands Up. But there's other groups like the Downingtown Focus um, Group and Chester County Party for Socialism and Liberation who have kind of, while Chester County Stands Up has been inactive, have been really active around those campaigns. 
Um, and more recently, uh, I work full time at a nonprofit called the Friends Association for Care and Protection of Children. And I've been working with them um, as a worker who does emergency rental assistance programs, but also in a space of advocacy for fair and safe housing. Because all those things are interconnected. Likely, people without housing stability are more likely to be criminalized for things that are just like um, not crimes, they're just being homeless, like vagrancy. It's like, I'm just homeless. Like, I'm just unhoused and I'm being arrested for sitting on a bench for where else am I going to be? Because um, I have nowhere to be. And so some of the things are just criminalized. Even some things like in ordinances about like, you can't have a shopping cart. And I'm like, well, who has a shopping cart besides like unhoused people who don't have any way to transport their few belongings? Um, um, but also, like, maybe you're going to, like, steal something, too, because you're not eat Like, so the things that, like, lead you into criminalization directly are tied to, like, housing, directly tied to education. It's all kind of interconnected. And you you have to figure out, like, okay, like, what's, what's at the top of the river here that's, like, flowing in? How do we close a net or build a dam on this? So we can have a safer community, but a lot of it has to do with stabilizing the community. Yeah, you know, I find myself in conversations a lot with people who are kind of newly understanding themselves as having a stake in social justice, trying to figure mm -hmm. out what to do, and a lot of times people get hit in the face with overwhelm because of seeing the big interconnectedness of the systems as they learn more, and they're not sure what to do. Um, and one of the things I talk about is that importance of community then in activism, because it, it's not that one person can take on everything. It's that lots of people have to be working in lots of different places, mm -hmm. working together. Um, yeah, so I just I see that in, in, in what you were just saying. Also, the, the interconnectedness of issues like cash bail, of course, who you know, somebody who is unhoused, somebody who is dealing with housing insecurity, somebody who's dealing with poverty is going to be more likely to be affected by um by, by unfair bail practices that keep them imprisoned where mm -hmm. somebody else who has the means would be able to get out um, and work on their case, like you said. Yeah. yeah, and the important thing is, like, having taken the work. Because my thing is, like, I feel like if you're an ally, then go sign a petition, you know? But you need to have, like, or, you know, do a voter registration drive. But, like, if you can feel, like, where you are in it, and you can feel, like, I need this to get done because I'll be safe when it is done. When we fight, the more we fight towards this, the more it increases my safety and well-being. The more you'll be in it, it'll stop. Like, oh, I have ally burnout. I'm like, what is ally? What is ally burnout? And a lot of people don't realize they are like, you know, I'm like, I'm a white woman. I'm a, and I have a duvet, so like, this is not me. And, and I'm like, no, it is because your coworker makes 75% more than you or 34% more than you. And so it is you. And not only that, you know, there's like, you know, harmful patriarchy that is just like on your back every day. And even then, even if you're like a middle-class white man, there's still like a 1% that can change all, like Elon Musk can make us, a tweet that can bankrupt your family because you put like all your stock in crypto coin like that can't happen to you either we're all on different levels of it but you still 
things like racial capitalism will sink us all if we don't fight against it. Yeah, yeah, it, it affects us in different ways. Like you said earlier, we're all in the we're all in the wave. We might be in different boats, but it's it's none of us are can escape it. And that's, I think, the the thing that um, is not true that we get told that, you know, if you achieve at a certain level or if you get to a certain place, that's how you're going to be safe, as opposed to no, what does community safety require? You know, how can I make sure that my neighbors and I are all safe? And who am I thinking of as my neighbor when I ask that question, too? Am I actually seeing everybody? Am I seeing everyone? And, like, how do we make sure we're all safe? Because it's like, it's, yeah. Like, as you said, it's easy enough to, like, you know, I'll I'll be the one to make it out the hood. I'll be the first-generation college student. But it doesn't do anything for your community to even do that. You just have led yourself to, um, it's more of like, instead of fighting the power structure, you want to fight to be the person who is on top of the power structure. Um, right. We should question. Story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should question. I, I think personally, uh, speaking to my congregation, we should question whether that's in keeping with our values when we really think about it. It might be what the world teaches us is what we should do. But um but is that part of Unitarian Universalism? Is that part of what we hope for, for not just ourselves, but for the people around us? Um, you, you mentioned a community group I hadn't heard of, I think Downtown Focus, and that was my next question for you, was are there other community groups working anywhere in Chester County that you think folks should know about and support? Yes. So Downtown Focus and PSL have been, like, doing great work in the community. Not only do they do rallies and uprisings, but um, have a big mutual aid network that helps with like food you can sign up for like fresh vegetables and food drop-offs to get on their their list and all kinds of mutual aid which i think mutual aid is a really good practice that communities developed over covid but like we should always keep and it's not just about this like i'm giving charity to you it's about like we're in a network of people who will help fulfill our needs when we need them. So if I'm in need of something, I can expect to have my needs filled. And if I'm in a position to help someone fill their needs, I can expect to fill their needs. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's more of a network of support than a, like, I'm this benevolent volunteer, I'm the benevolent donor, and uh, rather than really assessing the needs of what someone needs, it's like, here I am to, to bring you what I have, and uh, you should be grateful. And now I feel better about myself, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a lot of nonprofit volunteerism kind of shifts a lot of focus on, like, volunteer and giving them that warm, fuzzy feeling than, like, fulfilling the needs of people who are in actual need. Right. More of a, a charity model, uh, a philanthropy model, that, rather than a mutual aid model of recognizing that we're connected to each other. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned Friends Association. Is that where you work? Um, can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about their work? Yeah. So Friends Association is a 200, this year is our 200th year of operation, longest continuous operating nonprofit in Pennsylvania. Um, we are a, uh, we originated as Quaker, um, Quaker abolitionists giving back to the community that uh, was enslaved here by taking care of children and doing housing. Um, and we're still, you know, 
doing the same thing. Sometimes I feel it's celebratory that we've kept up with the work that was established, but sometimes I'm like, we've been doing the same thing for 200 years, and, and you know, things have gotten better, but things haven't. There's still a need. Still a need, exactly. And so as much as people like job security, I would love to to be out of work. I would love to be out of work and not to have a need to, to have the kind of work we do. But we have a rental, emergency rental assistance program, which is a program that I work in. Um, this is a federal program that's come up over COVID, where um, if you are behind in rent, you can dial 211, and you'll be connected with either friends, hack, um, human services, or open heart, and they can pay up to 15 months of rent. And so they'll pay all of your rental arrears up to 15 months. Um, and they'll pay three three months of futures. It depends on if you qualify for that or not. Whether emergency a rental assistance worker can decide that or not. But um, that is a program that's out there. I want to make sure that uh, everybody catches that out in the congregation. Yeah. Know somebody, or if you're in need of assistance, you can always um, get assistance from that program. And then we have the um, EPC, which is the Eviction Prevention Court, which has made transformative. Um, we're developing a white like white pages for that now but have really been transformative in the chester county courts of coatesville and downingtown which have the most evictions in chester county um really been transformative in outcomes from rather uh, the landlord gets to get possession like we have turned over the numbers from like landlord possession settlements and withdrawals and so that's the eviction prevention court where the court, the court coordinator goes to court um, every time that there's eviction court. So Thursdays in Downingtown and Tuesdays in Coatesville stands in courts observed, and we also bring an attorney. So everybody going into court for eviction gets to meet the attorney and court coordinator, and we immediately start to provide them services to make sure that they don't get evicted and the outcomes have been incredible. Um, we have a, a um, project in the works called Nia House, where we have uh, rented a home in Coatesville for people coming home from incarceration to reconnect with their children um, in a place where there's programs, um, organic gardens, and uh, free living expenses um, to help them get stabilized before they go into their home and reconnect with their children. A lot of times when you know, you have a long time away from your children, you are, you know, unconnected in, in a way that you can just work on rebuilding um, what was lost over the time. And then we have the homeless prevention case management where um, people who just need a little extra for organizing their lifestyle, budgeting, um, has a person, a case manager who works with them one-on-one to really make sure that they have all their affairs in order to prevent them from becoming homeless. Um, and I believe that is all of our programs. Thank you. That's, that, that's a great description. <laughs> um, are they, is Friends Association in Coatesville or are they in Westchester? They're in Westchester. I thought so. Okay. Yeah. When, yeah, when you said historic Quaker things are often in Westchester or uh, Delco, I noticed. So, yeah. Yep. We're in Westchester. Okay. Um, and then um, in addition to your 
work at Friends Association, um, the other thing I know about you from the internet <laughs> is um, that you you recently served a term on Coatesville City Council. Um, yeah. And and you know sometimes I think people experience or they imagine that the relationship between organizers or activists and public officials is an adversarial one. Um, so I'm really curious to hear what it was like for you to to serve in local government. Um, you know, what was that experience like? Would you do it again? Those kinds of questions. Yes. So I definitely would serve in public office again. I will say that um, when you're organizing, you should be prepared to put whatever level of pressure you need to put on to a public official um, and whatever level of accountability you need to put on to a public official as necessary. So I don't think it needs to be an adversarial relationship, but I do think you need to go forward in fighting for your community the way you need to. So if you can schedule a meeting with your local um, official and they can start working uh, for you to provide support, they're honest with you about like, what they can and can't do in their role and what kind of support they you can negotiate that you need from them. So it's like, okay, you can't pass this alone, but can you publicly say that you support this? Yes. Um, but you can also turn up the heat, too. You can, you know, you can do an email campaign. You can have everybody in the congregation send a, a strongly worded email if that doesn't work you know you can I mean protest is pretty a pretty high level of escalation but you should always be, feel like you need to put whatever pressure on a politician because they're a public servant and if the entire public is saying I need you to do this then they can't be saying no they shouldn't say no yeah. uh, within their range they shouldn't Play. To me, I don't think you should play politics and say, well, the party's not ready for this, or we don't want to, like, if the community is a need, that's the priority to me. Um, within, and there is, like, there certainly are things that, like, when I was an activist, I felt that a politician can do, that when you're there, your power is small and dependent on your colleagues and dependent on your codes book. And so, as long as I think I mean, politicians should be pretty transparent, like, hey, this is out of, like, what I can do. But also, you know, I think it's a cop-out to be like, oh, I can't do anything. I don't have anything. I don't have anybody uh, who agrees with me, and I just can't do anything. I think that there's other ways that you can support, like, you signing on to uh, a campaign that a group of organizers is doing as a politician does give it more legitimacy in the eyes of the politicians who can get it done, you should and you can and should do that. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, one of the things I'm hearing and what you're saying is, is maybe for all of us to remember that it's not an all or nothing model of power. Like Mm -hmm. that, that politicians, people in public office have a different seat in power. And so it's appropriate to hold them accountable for that. And also perhaps the experience of doing it yourself makes you realize like, it's not like I have absolute power to change everything just because I've been elected to public office. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. You definitely don't. Yeah. Um, (laughs) A a few members of our congregation, about six of us um, took a, a a couple months long course that was an organizing school offered by our denomination. It was sort of the basics of organizing. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was a light bulb moment for me was talking about that adversarial relationship um, and realizing that sometimes politicians might really be glad that the activists are knocking down their door or sending the email campaign because there might be something that the person in office really wants to do, 
but they don't feel like they have the public support that they can use to say like, look, this is what my constituency constituency mm -hmm. wants. Um, and I can relate to that as a minister because sometimes in my congregation, I'm thinking about the whole and one person says to me, we should really do this, you know, as a sermon. And I'm like, well, that's a good idea, but I don't know if it would have broad support. Right. And so if 20 people come to me, it's not adversarial. It's like, oh, now I know that there's a lot mm -hmm. of people in our community who want this. Um, so that was a really helpful shift for me too. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I also like, I've been a local politician. I don't know if the schedule of like a state level or U.S. federal level politician is, but I also don't think that you should just sit in your office and wait for folks to come to you. Like you need to be out in the community, having town halls, doing canvases, and figuring out like what are, what is it that folks need. Yeah. Yeah, because that's your job. It's not their job necessarily to come to you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's see. Um, I have a couple more questions. I don't want to talk for forever and keep you away from your house and your life and your people. <laughs> but um, let me just look here. So, you know, one of the things I did want to ask you about, um, because it was such a big part, I think, of the conversations about social justice in our and about race in particular in our congregation now almost two years ago um, back in 2020 when we were mostly locked down as a society and we saw this huge new wave of protests and uprisings and national attention around racial justice around the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis um, mm -hmm. and because you from your perspective I guess in your community and your activism what did you notice? Did you notice anything change at that time in your work here locally? Um, and how about since then? Has, has it changed again since then? Yes. So I was working on um, prison abolition and the cash bail campaign actually did start before that. Um, in 2019, uh, Chester County stands up at least some groundwork to uh, really do one-on-one -on -one with community members and start to build out our organization. And we launched our cash bail campaign at the beginning of 2020. One thing that um, you notice is that in 2020, with everybody being locked down, there's time to respond. Because everybody, when you go out and talk to your neighbors for a long time, the people that you connect with and talk to, I mean, have been saying the same thing. Uh, the criminal justice system does not work well for us. It doesn't favor us. It's dangerous to us. And uh, we already seen so many people die at the hands of the police. Like, we didn't need to see George Floyd or Vernon Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery um, die to know that... Uh, to know that this happens, we already knew, and it happens to us. It happens in Coatesville twice uh, or three times. So we we didn't need to see that. We already knew, but I think that the time uh, that we had not working and not um, doing anything else that occupies our time keeps us too busy to like respond to the community trauma. We have the time to really say, you know what, we need to get together and do something about this. Um, but there's been other times and other folks and other movements happening. They, they always are happening. Um, for the better part of 400 years since we got to the continent, these movements are and were happening. 
and I think like there's just more visibility. Yeah. So the work was here before before 2020, and it's certainly here after 2020. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the ways to get connected to it are here, even if um, maybe it's not on the TV and the headlines in the same way as it always is. It's still here. Exactly. It's yeah. I'm telling you, it's just as easy as like getting out and being like what's going on in this community, knocking on your neighbor's doors and then telling your neighbor to come knock on doors with you the next time. Absolutely. And that's how you, you build movement, figuring out, like, I wonder what's going on with this person. I wonder what's going on with my neighbor who hasn't been outside for the last week. Let's check. Let's see. That's how you start to build a movement because then you're like, okay, we're all together. We're all making sure we're safe. We have a pod. Uh, but also, how do we get the needs, our needs done? You can have a small campaign like, you know, our trash man keeps missing the block. Let's make sure we go to City Hall and make sure we get our trash, something as small as that, something as big as systemic issues um, you can do as long as you work together. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling your answer might play into to my second to last question here, which is um, kind of about how we start to make change. Um, but just wanted to name, you know, that that one of the things I think is often talked about when we think about Chester County as our community um, is that it's the wealthiest county in the state. Um, but, of course, that doesn't tell the whole story. We know that there are, are areas of our county, including Coatesville, including Downingtown, um, some of these post-industrial areas, some of the rural areas where, where most of the residents are not sharing in that prosperity of the average wealth in the mm-hmm. county. Um and and it's a big question, I realize. So maybe maybe your answer is more about the organizing level and connecting with your neighbors. But when you think about how we might change some of the socioeconomic inequality in our county, where where do you see us? Like where do, where do you see the place to start? Well, number one, we need fair we need fair housing mm-hmm. and mixed income housing. So wealth disparity has like much to do with outcomes, siloing low income. Um, communities together mm-hmm. and not giving like mixed income to help bring up the community but also take taking away like corporate investment and limiting the amount of uh, freedom that corporate investors have to like buy up all the properties and raise up all the rents and keep you know people who are ready for home ownership just on the cusp um, you know you're not like a high earner or you're like a moderate earner but you're ready to buy a house but the uh, corporate investors are always going to buy you out because you could put your offer in and somebody could see your offer and say I'll give you six months up front and then I mean I've even seen that with rent yeah. um, and so number one we need to put regulations on what like corporations can do two um, we need to have stop having such like disparity um especially around like school districting and things like that where they can they put all folks uh from one economic status into a school where you know like the tax burden becomes so high and things like that so number one we need to just stop doing predatory and uh disinvestment in communities and two we need to honor communities that are already established let communities be what they are um because like Coatesville is in the state of trying to like revitalize and you you hear things that like trigger to me trigger things and I'm like oh we're they're like oh we gotta bring new people in we wanna 
have a community of working people. We want to have a community of homeowners. But I'm like, there are going to be people who are always going to be tenants. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the community as it exists besides the divestment. And so instead of trying to invest in the community that different people want to live in, invest in the community that the folks who are living here want to live in. Instead of pricing us out of this community and getting us to move along to whatever low-income community we want to go to next. Because we have our community established here. Yeah. Yeah, and there are ways to do that kind of development that does not require that you replace the people who are there in order to develop the the area. Like you said, there are ways to create create regulations on, on companies and corporate interests and developers for how they would do their development work so that it doesn't displace people. Um, and also yeah. have like a community benefits agreement with developers mm-hmm. where like, if you want to come develop, like do, do you meet all these requirements for the community? And then if not, then no. Right. Then if, and like, but also that's um, because of the way our capital society is set up, community members will really have to like, negotiate with people who own properties and be like, look, we don't want this. What can we, like, you're a part of this community. Don't sell your property to this person if they're doing this. But on the flip side of that, people are in such economic strength. It's like, well, they're offering me $300,000, and I'm probably never going to have another opportunity to earn $3,000. And so, uh, I mean, there's just like a, a giant pivot issues yeah yet another reason it takes all of us working together that that exactly. one piece of it can't do it all on its own yeah yeah exactly well Nadia my last question for you is kind of a future one um just as somebody who is so connected and involved born and raised in Coastville um and however you define your community whether that's Coastville and not or not um what what is your deepest hope for your community moving forward to me my deepest hope is um, a life with um, less trauma. A life with, like, I mean, there's not going to be a life with no trauma that doesn't exist, but as close as we can get to, like, no trauma as possible, that's the that's what I wish for my community, is to not keep having to recover from traumatic experiences, relentless trauma. I just want everyone to be healthy and safe. I want that too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this time. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I felt I feel very honored to have done this for you and for the congregation. Um, it's, it sounds really great. It's amazing. So thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you, uh, Nadia, for taking. invite you all, whether here or at home, to join me in the spirit of prayer. And my prayer today is one of gratitude for this community and for this tradition. Our universalist ancestors who remind us that all of us need all of us. That salvation is not personal, that it's a collective project. 
and for the community that we have here. For all of the people who we see on Sundays, whether in body or as a little name on a screen right now, we know them. We know each other. And that presence in each other's lives reminds us of the truth of our tradition. That each of us is needed and each of us is beloved. And so for these prayers that I've spoken, and for whatever prayers you're carrying on your heart this morning, together we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.